My name's Karina Celine. And I'm Matt Abetti. And this is... We're Just, just here, here to Help. help. Alright, we got a bunch of stuff on tap today. Uh, we are talking about Mitch McConnell. He's coming after our Social Security. Hide your retirement. Hide your wife. Hide your kids. I was going with more of like a Freddy Krueger. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. He's going to come in your dreams and... Really just like steal your hopes and dreams with his turtle claws. Yeah. And then like touch your butt on the way out. What does Fr- like Freddy Krueger have on his hands? Is knives? Knives? Oh, okay. I don't know. I always know. think I don't of know. the Rick and Morty one where he has swords. And then they're like, this is derivative enough that I protected from a lawsuit, bitch. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, no, I know the episode. It's like the Dreamception one. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, from that, we're going to smoothly seek into the extrajudicial murder and dismemberment of Washington Post journalist uh, Jamal Khashoggi. Okay. And then we are going to talk about uh, Trump using immigration in the midterms. Yeah. Um, but first, we want to plug some stuff for you. Uh, we have some great videos coming your way about the eight most competitive states in the um, 2018 Senate race. Yeah. Mm-hmm. According to us. According to us and, like, general polling. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we're going to tell you like where to put your money, uh, where to encourage people to go out and canvas, phone bank, etc. And uh, Karina's favorite app that I've been telling people about, which oh, is... You're telling people about it too now? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Wait, wait, what is it called again? Vote With Me. 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 Allows you to Adrian. have... Allows you to have the very uncomfortable conversation everyone needs to be happen- having right now, which are is... Are you using a condom? Are you voting? Are you voting? <laughs> which, for some reason, is a more uncomfortable conversation than are you wearing a condom? Like, <laughs> I've seen dude bros who are like, you wrap that shit up? Yeah. What are you doing on Tuesday? I don't know. Um, people should be more open about this. And fun fact... Just to strike some paranoia, your voting record is technically public. Yeah. So, so on this app, people can look you up, dear secret Trump supporter or person who didn't vote, which... I mean, they just tell you. They tell you if you voted or not. They didn't say who you voted for because that's always secret. Oh, right, 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 right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like I, for one, have a perfect voting record for every presidential, midterm, municipal election that I've been eligible to participate in. I have a little check mark. Next to each one. Very nice. Because I'm not a fucking do nothing bitch. I don't have a perfect voting record. This yeah. probably, you should get it. Yeah, because I lived in Washington, D.C. And, and what? They don't have voting there? Doesn't It never matters. The, the, the mayor of D.C. is always a Democrat, 100% of the time. And the mayor of D.C. is almost always a progressive left-wing Democrat. And, and, and... The mayor of D.C. is one of the most ineffectual politicians in the United States because we decriminalized marijuana in D.C. and it was overturned by Congress because Congress controls what Washington, D.C. can do. That's why we have do taxation without DC representation. Is that a thing? Yes. D.C. statehood is a big, 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 big deal. People get very angry about it because there are more people in D.C. than there are in some states. It's a city that has traditionally been filled with black people. Well, we can't let them have any rights. I mean, that's pretty much it, right? Um, It's now become a more white place, but it's still a liberal center. The Trump people have moved in. Yeah. But uh, yeah, they have the same issue as like Puerto Rico, Guam, like a lot of the territories that are like, you can serve in the military, you can pay taxes, you can do all this stuff, but you can't uh, vote. Yeah, we should fix that. Yeah, we should fix it in a major way. Maybe when we take power one day. Anyway, so let's bust uh, bust right into memory lane. Y'all remember that tax bill the GOP passed? Yeah. That uh, $330 trillion tax cut for yeah. the ultra-rich corporations. And not to mention, remember, again, during the Kavanaugh hearings, the House passed yet another massive tax cut, mostly favoring the ultra-wealthy, the rich. Right. So, so the GOP forcing this in... In a way that they like to force things on a non-consenting public. Added to our deficit doing this, right? Right. They were like, it's okay to add to the deficit if we're giving money to our, our rich friends and corporations. And remember, the argument for this is when you do this tax cut, 
we will make more money from taxes because there'll be more spending and more spending means more taxes and blah, 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 blah. Right? I mean, no. That never happens. No, right. That's always the argument. And every time it doesn't come to fruition, they push, push yet another tax cut. To try uh, and make it happen again. Which, again, never, ever has happened. And by the way, it's a personal rant of mine. Mm-hmm. Since World War II, the end of World War II, there's been no politician who has pushed for a tax increase. Tax cuts have always been like the name of the game. And really and truly, how many times you can peel an onion before it's just not even an onion anymore? Before it's like a shallot and then just doesn't have any more layers. Right. So it's like, it's a point of irresponsibility. For sure. But yeah, sorry. Well, going. okay. So so like part of the reason they like to do tax cuts is it's a way to take taxpayer money and put it into their own re-election piggy banks. And the way that this works is that they are like, yo, I'd sure like it if uh, these corporations and ultra-rich people give me more money. And those people are like, well, I don't know. How oh, is it going to be expensive, you know? And so the Republicans are like, okay, well, we'll just cut your taxes, right? And so they cut the corporations and the ultra-rich taxes. And then half, say this is their devil's bargain, devil's triangle, half of their tax cut gets donated back to the GOP that cut the tax cuts in the first place. So basically what is happening is the GOP is taking American taxpayers' dollars, money from your pocket, taking it into the government, and then bringing it back onto themselves. Yep. To fund their own campaigns and to effectively consolidate power for an eternity. And notice what how short-term this is. A tax cut forever... For the ultra-rich corporations. ...in exchange for some short-term campaign contribution to keep this person re-elected for yet another cycle. Right. Um, anyway. On top of that. Yeah. About cutting taxes and ballooning a deficit. This connects to a larger pattern, which is that the Republican Party used to be a principled argument against the left in the United States. I've argued a lot that there is good reason to have conservative thinking in the United States. Like, otherwise, like, an out-of-whack, fully left-wing thought process. Like, I'm a left-winger, I'm a progressive, but even I'll say, like, there's 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 purpose in a healthy debate, an exchange, a reasonable uh, conflict. And one of the arguments for a very long time was deficit spending is really bad. And deficit spending was 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 bad because it meant that the government could sometimes write blank checks it wasn't responsible for. And that was uh, something that um, struck a lot of fear into, into conservative thinkers because it meant that uh, handouts or projects buildings, public works, all that stuff, could be done in excess. That's a small fear. But why would they be afraid of that? Uh, you know, this is like a philosophical argument. About, like we're going to do too much good in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the equivalent of like your dad being like, yeah, well, here's a credit card and you have to stay within your means and you can't overspend. But that's a ter- actually a terrible metaphor for how... The actual economy does not work that way. The actual economy does not. Is like they take this idea that like, oh, you overdrafted your, you overspent on your credit card limit, right? You've hit your limit, can't go over it. That's not how a government's finances or the economy works. Like we can run at a deficit just fine. Yeah, running at a deficit is fine. And so, but the so the take home of that is that they use this illusion of the deficit being bad, even though they just added to it by like three hundred trillion dollars. Three trillion dollars. I don't fucking remember. It's so astronomical; it doesn't even fucking matter. Yeah. Well, my my point is that no. Hold on. Yeah. So they added to it an enormous amount, and now what they're going to do is say because there's a deficit, we need to cut spending right. in the form of cutting Medicaid, Medicare, Social Security, and Obamacare. Yeah. And that's literally what Mitch McConnell just said, even though he just added to the deficit by pushing through this tax bill. Oh yeah. There was this really clever thing that essentially was like. If four major Republican policies of the last decade and a half just didn't happen, we would be running at a surplus. Right. It's Iran war, the Iraq war, uh, these uh, this uh, these massive tax cuts. I forgot what the last one is. And it was like none of these were necessary. That's part one. But the other thing I want to say is this is a breakdown in having a principled person you're arguing against. There are arguments for and against def- like certain amounts of deficit spending and blah, blah, blah. But 
if the Republican Party is no longer going to be the party of like, well, you know, if we are going to give a tax cut, it has to be countermeasured in this way. Or if we are going to have a public work, it has to be countermeasured in this way. If that doesn't even exist, that means that they can be in this place of being absolutely irresponsible and not only ballooning the deficit, but also delivering in an irresponsible way. But I don't think this is a new behavior. Like, this has been their modus operandi for years and years and years. Oh, absolutely. Like, I don't think this is, like, a sudden departure from their plan. I think maybe you're talking about the conservatives like, the 1950s, which uh, are closer to our moderate Democrats, if anything. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm really talking about, like, the idea of a conservative. Sure. The elusive idea of a conservative that had possibly never existed. In, in American politics. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. So... That, that Those are two like horrible outputs of this. One is we're ballooning the deficit and we don't have a way to get out. And by the way, in terms of all the things that you could cut, there's a certain point where you can't cut taxes anymore, where you can't – where the government just ceases to work. And the Republican Party has sort of made it very clear that a working government is not in their interest, that government is 100% of the time – Bad. Well, it's because they want unfettered corporate control of everything. Exactly. So this is not like just about taxes or just about lining their pockets. It's a worldview that says government is bad. Democracy is bad. And the functioning government that is supposed to check and regulate and protect citizens and, and have all of these functions that protect veterans, that make sure that you have health care, that make, make sure that you have social security, that if you get old, you're not impoverished because you don't have the ability to work, that you have clean water. There, there are parts of the United States that don't have clean water. They obstructed an Obama appointee to the EPA for over 800 days, not because of a disagreement about who the person was going to be, but that they had a disagreement with the idea that the EPA should be a functioning agency at all. So I, I, my point about the listeners is a, cons a principled conservative would say government is good but has these constraints. And we can have a debate about those constraints. But if you just don't believe in government, if you just are there to think in short-term a short-term way about your own political future, this is what you get. And you cannot say Republican Party is a party of patriots. This is the party of freedom. No, to your point, it's the party of transferring power away from government and to corporations by giving them money, a safe haven to pollute and destroy and damage uh, our country. And, and by the way, companies that have no loyalty to the United States that could leave at any moment to relocate their headquarters whenever uh, they have used up and destroyed this country and its resources. All right. And just, just for like a little bit of perspective, last year, Ed Sheeran, the musician, paid more money in taxes than both Amazon and Apple did. This That's is a travesty. insane. Multi-billion dollar company. Which are both headquartered in the United States. Which both exploit American labor. Right. The last part you might be thinking is, well, tax cuts are good. My, my paycheck ends up looking a bit thicker. And a, you know that it's mostly for the rich. And that's something that's been bared out in the numbers. I just want to say one thing. Yeah. It's not even for like the normal rich. Because I work with some very wealthy, like what I believe to be wealthy people, making like high six figures. No, oh, yeah. And they're like, this tax cut is fucking me too. Right, yeah. Like you have to be making like million like tens of millions billions of dollars to actually benefit from this tax cut yeah it's not like people who inter like interact with the lower echelons of society like through having a poor pilates instructor you yeah. know anyways continue so the idea now is the last idea is the idea of trickle down that money that is is, is slashed from uh taxation ends up being spent that's just not true and, and we've touched on this before but part of it is poor people spend money because they have to. Because they have to. Middle class people spend money because they have to. And fun fact, once you've crossed a certain barrier cash-wise, and I'll say this as like a personal experience. In my early 20s, you don't have a whole lot of needs and wants. And I had enough of enough money from my job that I remember I was just like, nah, fuck it. <laughs> like, I'll splurge on some stuff and whatever. And I didn't need to be doing that. But that's a good consumer. But once you've crossed a certain barrier and you don't need any more, like 
you can't keep up with spending more a, money a billion dollars which uh, you know again to be a billionaire could fund 2000 people to live middle class lives in the United States a, one billionaire and it's just in the United States where we have a really good standard of living billionaires are immoral the fact that we have a system that supports them is immoral and the fact that we create tax cuts for those people is obscene horrendous horrifying to 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 bring that even into starker contrast and to explain that a little bit it's like imagine trying to spend a billion dollars like as hard as you possibly could right it's like it's gonna take like even if i was just like trying to buy as much expensive stuff as possible as many cars houses blah blah it's gonna take me a while to spend a billion dollars right even if i wanted to right yeah. So, so maybe for me, it'd be better. It was like, I'm going to spend a hundred grand of this and I'm going to save the rest, which is what happens when you're that wealthy is you save it or invest it in private companies. But what if you split up that billion dollars, like you said, through thousands of households and each one had maybe like $15,000 to spend. And the next Bill Gates isn't trapped or killed in their own community or doesn't ever get to see a college or doesn't ever get to go to a master's or PhD program because they're constrained by X, Y, or Z, or the person who would have created your favorite television show, your favorite piece of music, all of those people would have had the freedom to do that stuff rather than be chained to a desk or have to trade on something that would have made the world better so that they could survive. Right. These are, the, I think one of the things that talking about tax cuts fails to do is to talk about the humanity if we talk about just dollars and cents and having another 25 cents in your pocket, what we forget about is the humanity of like having really great schools where students learn to debate, where students learn to play music, where students have the freedom to... You know that I, I worked with private school students for a mm -hmm. long time. One of the private schools I worked for had a design department. So there were kids who graduated from the high school with a portfolio that they could have sent to not only a design program, an architecture program, uh, design like a, a what's it called animation and design studios, CGI effects places. That's the kind of level of opportunity that we miss out on, and it's not just about cash, and it's not just about elevating. It's about fulfilling a person's dreams and hopes, and letting them know that they can live to their uh, their full potential. I, I don't know if you've probably felt this. I felt this. But there have been a bunch of different things I wish I could have tried and done. But each time I've just been like, yeah, but I, I, like, I cannot afford to be out of work for more than three months. Yeah. I mean, and, and then the, all that money that could have gone to, I don't know, giving people a basic standard of living from which they could flourish from went to further lining the bank accounts of... Maybe, what, a thousand people? It's really disgusting. And and the thing that enrages me, and this is what's going to happen if the Republicans retake the Senate, which, again, is why you should watch our Senate series, educate yourself on this, and really just, we're just a couple days from the election, really push on these races in any way that you can. Because as soon as they retake the Senate, they're going to repeal Obamacare, They've said that this themselves. Mitch McConnell came out and said this audibly into a microphone. Uh, they're going to repeal Obamacare. They're going to cut Social Security. They're going to cut Medicaid and Medicare. And there are videos of, of, of Paul Ryan talking about, like, it was his, like, wet dream since college to cut these huge Social social Security programs. Could you imagine it's, having it's, sex it's with these people? I mean, I, I can't. It's like, oh, baby, yeah. T t tell, me that, tell me that thing I like to hear again. We're, we're going to cut. Oh no! Say say it deeper. Medicare for old people. No deeper. Medicare for old people. Oh yeah, that's it. That's yeah, it. Now do the social security thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you gonna pay into it for a long time, and then we're gonna pillage it for government gain. Okay, now pretend you're you're a poor person. Uh, I don't oh know. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Uh. That poor person uh, impression, by the way, mm -hmm. inspired by something I say to myself in the shower. <laughs> what, is when you're crying? Yeah, when I'm just like, I'm realizing again that I have to pay my rent. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Someone just like plunged a knife into you. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what they're going to do. And that's why like elections really, 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 really matter. Yeah. And we're hitting a boiling point specifically in, in this way 
if minimum wage, well, the, the best metric is, it used to be that a summer job and some part-time work could pay your way through college. And that is the most ludicrous idea right now. If someone right now told me, you know, oh, over the summers, I'm, I'm a waiter and that gives me enough money to pay for most of the school year and I maybe work at a part-time, coffee shop part-time, I'd be like, you're insane. That is impossible unless you're in-state and have a scholarship. I was in-state and I had a scholarship and I could do that. But when I was out of state, there's no goddamn way. No way. There's no way. There's no way. And even even when I was in state, I was working my butt off. In state isn't even that cheap. Well, like, well I, again, I had a scholarship. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but that's again, that's not everyone's experience. Well, maybe everyone should get a college scholarship and go to an in state school. Not gonna happen. This is my Republican voice. <laughs> it sounds like the Crypt Keeper. It's basically what it is. It's all of the Republican Party. Talk about a people. death panel, man. You want to cut Medicare? Grim, really? Yeah. Who's going to run Grim Reaper 2020? Just with his scythe, just mowing down the old people? The- you, you, you want access to medications? I'll give you a thick dose of scythe. Yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> that's terrible. But that's like a really poignant point, right? It's like they were they were scaring people about panels deciding whether or not you die. Even if that was true, I would prefer a panel deciding whether or not people live and die over everyone just deciding everybody dies. Right. That at a certain age, that at a certain age, whatever chaos happens, you know, uh, cancer, arthritis, lupus, whatever it happens to you, fuck it, you're on your own. You know, to be fair though, like if they cut Medicare. That would just decimate their voting block. Yeah. It's just like rich old people, I guess. Yeah, rich old people. Did you ever read this? I don't know how true it is. Yeah. But it's that it's not that as people get older, people become more conservative. Right. It's just that the the poorer people die out. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's like a 20-year life expectancy gap. Between? Between the richest and the poorest in this country. That makes sense. I don't doubt that at all for a second. We should just close, I've said this before, just close all the polling locations in like rich old areas. And make them drive through the poor areas. Yeah. No, I mean just close them and then like cut their tires. They shouldn't be driving anyway when you're that old. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so the wrap up to that is please, for the love of God, uh, what are eight states for the Senate? North Dakota, Indiana. Nebraska. Tennessee. Not Nebraska. Not Nebraska. Nevada. Nevada, Arizona, Texas, Florida, Missouri. So check out the states. Give money to those candidates. Those are the states that are really going to flip the Senate, and those are the things we protect. Yeah, social security. I mean, midterms is going to be sort of the thing that is going to envelop a lot of this conversation. And I hate to break it to you guys. Six months after midterms, you know what we're going to be talking about, baby? 2020. 2020. I mean, that's legit when it all starts to happen. And already... There are predictors about who is running in the midterms and all that stuff. Yeah, but we'll get to that when we get to that. Yeah. Um, so One step at a time, folks. Wrapping up that segment, we're going to switch to our next segment, which is the brutal murder of a journalist by Saudi Arabia. And we told you to keep an eye on the story last week. Yes. Uh, and I was like, it's going to develop, and it sure did develop. So, should I, should I bring everyone up to speed? Do yeah, let's do it. Okay. A little over two weeks ago... Uh, this Washington Post journalist who is based in Turkey wanted to marry his fiance, who is Turkish. And so he is a, a citizen of Saudi Arabia. And so he had to go to the embassy in Istanbul, the Saudi embassy in Istanbul. And, and he was an exile. He was in self-imposed exile. He was not returning to Saudi Arabia. No, no, no. So he like lived, he's a permanent resident of the United States. Yes. And a journalist. Yes. Important fact. So he goes into the Saudi embassy and he never comes out. Yes. And first Saudi Arabia was like, what are you talking about? He totally left. And I was like, no, like the, uh, the Turkish government had footage of no one leaving the embassy. And they were like, then they were like, we don't know what happened. And they were like, then, then the Turks were like, we have audio of you murdering him. Now they said that it's a brawl. The Saudi government's now and so they, They've settled on the story that this rotund, nerdy journalist took on a 15 person hit squad and and fought so bad, so so aggressively that they had to dismember him to deal with him. And they incidentally 
in this embassy had a bone saw ready to do such a thing. Like a, a special tool. <laughs> Doesn't your embassy come equipped with a bone saw, Matt? No. No? No. That's an oversight. Of all of my embassies that I have around the world, <laughs> I can't say I have a bone saw. No, we should invest in one. Yeah. Some great deals on Amazon Prime, our future corporate overlord. What I would say my embassies have is a large meat shredder. Mm. It's just one room. <laughs> and it's just, and it's run, it's run by a man who's turning a crank. Is that how you make your kebab? Yeah, that's how I make it like kebab. Just from journalists? <laughs> Who've upset you. Okay, all right. This is dark. <laughs> this is so dark. No, it is. It's just really, really dark, right? And you might say to yourself, like, look, Karini, that's what I'm calling myself now. This didn't happen in the US. This didn't happen to a full blooded American journalist. Why should I worry? And you should worry because the Trump administration is basically going along with the Saudi narrative and bowing down to them and accepting this brutal murder murder and dismemberment yeah asked about whether or not he believed the saudis yeah trump said i do i do which is insane because we have his apple watch recorded his murder there's audio of it and so this matters because trump's blasé attitude and antagonistic attitude and frankly violent attitude towards journalists here and complete lack of condemnation of this type of action makes it very dangerous for journalists around the world in more oppressive regimes. Because previously we had an administration where there would be punishments or sanctions or something. Yeah, I mean, you know? it's, a, it's, it's bad inside the United States. The United States needs to be as much of a beacon to other countries. And one of the ways that they can single, signal is, hey, freedom of press, the ability to say things that are contrary to the government is an important thing, a thing that should be preserved as much as possible. And when the U.S. president doesn't defend that very basic, fundamental American right, and there's really no reason why that right shouldn't be extended to every person on the planet, even in a symbolic, by the way, it's a symbolic situation here. The condemnation of the Saudi government for doing this is symbolic. There is no major output. This this is. I mean, a, I mean, I think I think it would be good to put sanctions on them. Good to put sanctions on them, but I mean, what I'm saying and that's is more like, than symbolic. I would say the bare minimum isn't even being met. The bare sure, minimum okay, yeah. is don't. This is inappropriate. We we condemn this. We, we do strongly blah, blah. condemn the actions of the Saudi government. I wrote I wrote your press release for you. Even the even the, now, do we think that? Trump should go further. Do we think that Obama was too soft on Saudi Arabia? Do we think Bushes were way too soft on Saudi Arabia? Yes, 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 yes. The United States has a complicated, very messy, very morally gray relationship with the Saudis. I wouldn't say it's morally gray. It's like dishwater black. We know that the Saudi government sponsored 9-11. Yes. And that's not like I've been watching truther videos. It's actually what happened. Yes. And... Actually, Obama vetoed a measure that would let the victims of 9-11 sue Saudi Arabia because that same piece of legislation would let other countries sue us for drone strikes. Yes. So it's not a – and they also helped us torture during the Bush years. I mean like along with Egypt. But there are lots of facets to this and the bare minimum facet of it, which most other presidents has have upheld, is – we condemn, we don't think this is right, we disagree on this, that, and the other thing because we can have good relationships and, and disagree on those things. And that Trump wasn't capable of doing such a thing has more to say about his disrespect for journalists and the ability to speak out against your government and the pursuit of justice and what's right than it has to say about a strategic relationship, which is one of the things that's so surprising these evangelical leaders who are like, we don't want to sacrifice the hundreds of millions of dollars in arms deals that we have with Saudis. And that is the most morally bankrupt thing. Well, it's because the evangelicals have always been bankrupt. And they were essentially created by corporate America to basically mass control a portion of the electorate. I mean... There's some excellent books on that topic. Yeah, there... It's But I guess there's another illusion of moral moral righteousness. It, yeah, it, is it, slipping just like everything else. Everyone's masks are coming off in this age. Yeah, but so so you look not only at the symbolic aspect of 
condemning violence against journalists. Um, but also Trump has a lot of actual of his own private business ties in Saudi Arabia, and he doesn't want to mess that up. And that's what Jared Kushner was doing there, negotiating with the crown prince a couple months ago. And this so is if, why... you ever, if you ever, ever ask why the, the Trump administration is playing friendly with a crazy person, right? Like the crown prince, I would say, is the Mad King, I suppose now is that it's not only that they are morally bankrupt, but two, they probably have some sort of business deal. So you ask yourself, why is he being friendly to Putin? Why is he supporting Putin's murder and torture of journalists? Why is he supporting Saudi Arabia's murder and torture of journalists? Why is he uh, supporting Turkey's torture and murder of journalists? It's because he has deals with them, and he has money flowing out, and it's pure, undiluted corruption. Yeah. Let's also talk about the chilling effect it has on journalists inside the United States. Of course. Because I think that for a lot of people, that's not clear. Like, well, it didn't happen to an American. Well, it happened to someone who called the United States home. And that's he worked for an American newspaper. Worked for an American newspaper. In the United States. In the United States. Those are important facts. If you are not a natural born citizen, you are still entitled to all the rights and protections of someone who lives here and calls this place home. If you're a permanent resident, you're a green card holder, it does not mean that murdering you is any less right. It does not mean that being stopped by the police is any more, but without cause is any more right. It does not mean that you're more jailable. None of those things is true. So it sends internally, just inside the United States, or I should say, especially in the United States, an anti-immigrant message, an a, 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 a essentially racist message, a message that says, well, he came from a dangerous country. He's, what importance does this journalist have? They aren't American. Yet another internal effect it has. It says that there are limits to the amount of protection there are for journalists who are not towing the line. Yes. It tells us that there are forms of speech that are more valued for political reasons than others. And that in itself is dangerous. Because if Trump does have ties to Saudis, or the United States has friendly relationship with Saudi Arabia, and we can't be critical of Saudi Arabia or the U.S.'s relationship with Saudi Arabia or even the U.S. on its own, that it was Saudi Arabia who is an ally of the United States, that it happened in Turkey who is an ally of the United States, or that it happened in Russia or Japan or, or wherever else is not the point. The point is that those people have a right to feel safe and to be able to speak their minds. And inside the United States, that is sacred, 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 sacred. Sure, you can't protect every journalist. You can't make sure everyone around the world can say and think and feel however they want. But inside the United States, that is foundational to democracy. Well, it's in our Constitution. Yeah, but it's also, I mean, beyond the Constitution... There is no functioning democracy without an open exchange of, of thoughts. Well, 100%. And this is what we're seeing right now in the Trump era, where the vast preponderance of information that we have about what's going on and uh, what the Trump administration is doing, what they're trying to cover up, is from journalists. Without them, we would be absolutely sunk. So if you do not feel a personal attachment to this execution, you should. Yeah. You should. You really should. Because it's, it's, it's a canary in the coal mine. Yeah. Journalism is not for 99.9% .9 of journalists. You know, if you're newscasters or whatever. But for most journalists, it's a passion project. It's, uh, it's because people truly and genuinely believe in the truth and people's ideas and thoughts. And they devote their lives to not a very high-paying profession. They're usually profoundly intelligent people. And... The last part of all of this is telling people that the pursuit of truth and this sort of personal patriotism about doing what's right by other people, regardless of where they're from, that that in itself is punishable or bad or not valued. This ties into the tax thing in the sense that we don't want to make sure that all people can live happy and healthy lives regardless of income. And if you're a journalist and you're making a lower income, you know, fuck you, you should have become a... Uh, uh, executive or something like that. And then the other side of it is, which is you already put your life on the line for the pursuit of truth and you can die for it. So you can live in misery and have to deal with the threat of dying, being in prison, 
not having the full freedom to move around the, the world, all that stuff. This is a very grim picture. Seeing it in isolation allows us to compartmentalize it and see it as, oh, it's just a small problem here and a small problem there. But it is a as part of a larger network scheme that is directed towards, it, it is all in concert towards the singular goal of um, disempowering people. Yeah. This is a very depressing topic, and we just want you to keep an eye on it going forward because it'll it'll really be kind of the bellwether. It's very important. Yeah. It's, I think my personal fear is a lot of people will say, it's just some journalist. It's just some random thing. It's a very far distant thing. But really and truly, it is very personal. As an Iranian, mm-hmm. where journalists, people who speak out, all that stuff, get imprisoned and mysteriously die or mysteriously go into exile, it's easy to say, well, he shouldn't have said that about the government. And, you know, he put himself in some of that danger and blah, blah, blah. There are people who, in Iran, journalists and dissidents, protesters, who have quote, committed suicide in prison. Yeah. I mean, Russia does the exact same thing. And, uh, you know, for Americans, and I've, I've seen this a lot of interviews recently, as I'm like looking at those interviews where people are interviewing Trump people and just saying like, you know, why do you think? And one of the repeating things I hear is, Democrats have made that story up. That's not really happening. No real person would separate children from their parents at the border, for example. And I think some of that is happening now with, well, it's just one journalist. And how, how responsible are we really? We are. We're profoundly responsible because whether you like it or not, the United States is the leader. It is one of the beacons of what it means for there to be a free and open press uh, and what it means for uh, democracies and empowered people to have a voice. Yeah. So it's some real bleak, bleak stuff. Yeah. Usually it's the other way around. Usually I'm like Mr. Mr. Optimistic. Really grim. Very grim. It's been it's you know. It's grim. It's very grim. Yeah. We're 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 in a tight place. The window on a lot of things is closing if we aren't active and engaged and very aware. Yeah. The window on climate change is is, is beginning to close. The window on our democracy, and I really do believe this, yes. is beginning to close. This is our last free election. Midterms or midterms. 2020? No, midterms. I mean, I think... No, it really is because the way that the state legislatures and governorships and even higher up, the way that falls breaks 2020 because that's the governors and legislators will decide how the districts are sliced up and gerrymandered. Well, the only thing I was going to add is this election will be maybe our last. Mm -hmm. And if we make it through this one, it could be the next election. And we have a lot of work to get out. I mean, where we got to started in like the Nixon era. Sure. 100%. And we've been on a slow, like it was like we were slowly rolling downhill and then we like just hit a pit and we're just in free fall. And we're really hoping that the, the ground comes up to meet us soon before... We're wrecked up. Um, anyways, moving from one depressing topic to another. You guys should really see Karina just kind of had a moment where she just like shook her head like she was just trying to break out of like a nightmare. <laughs> well, I was just like, I was like, how like, this is such a not funny episode. This is a dark episode. We used to have very dark episodes. This is like too. a spooky Halloween episode. Oh man. But like real, so it's not fun. This, I, I think I know now know what my costume is going to be for Halloween. What, just reality? Yeah. <laughs> and then people will be like, what? I don't find anything scary about that. And all I'll do is like, I'll lean over and I'll be like, the president could be elected for life. Also, I would like some candy. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then like a shiver just runs down their spine. And they continue to do nothing. Yeah. Uh, anyways, moving from one <laughs> depressing segment to another, like a crypt keeper moving from crypt to crypt. What's a crypt keeper do? Is he just like a maintenance man? I imagine he's the innkeeper, but for the crypt. Like when you're moving into the crypt, you need to like get a key? Yeah, you show up and then you're like, hey, does the crypt have Wi-Fi? And the guy goes, yeah, the password is on the binder on your desk. What's the password? And the, <laughs> I don't know. We're moving to our next topic. 
Our next topic is immigration, which came up uh, Saturday. Right. Last Saturday. Essentially, caravan of people. Pompeo was already visiting Mexico City. Uh, Why was Pompeo in Mexico City? I actually have no idea. For the flautas? Yeah, he was there for the flautas. That's what I would do for the Secretary of State. Dude. Be like, yo, I want some kimchi. We'll put that on that like, corporate cart or that government the card. Cut. It's a corporate card now. Yeah, it is a corporate card. In any case, yeah. there are, there's a caravan of people who are trying to escape Guatemala and mm-hmm. Honduras. Mexico essentially has their own border issue. And so they're already like, okay, well, we've got to like essentially process all these people and for a certain number of them, send them back. To get to the United States from Guatemala or Honduras, you have to go through Mexico. Yes. Pompeo was like, you're not sending them up to the United States. Mm-hmm. To which Mexico was like, yeah, duh. Um, contrary to popular belief, Mexico does not aid or help anybody escape their country and go into the United States. It's just not their jam. But there are people whose livelihoods depend on finding a new place that's safer to live, and they do escape their countries and sneak through other countries, and some of them do come to the United States. And some of them stay in Mexico, mm-hmm. and some of them go to places like Brazil or whatever else. This is minor, but it has turned into a battle cry for Trump, who started drumming this topic up. Well, if only Schumer and Nancy Pelosi would sit down with me, we would have an immigration policy tomorrow. They sat down and ate Chinese food with him. Yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah. That was when things were cute still. Yeah. For anybody who's listening and is just like, this is not surprising. This is Trump being Trump. I want to say that, I want to tell you that the timing of this is really important. And it's something that Republicans have done. And I'll take, we're going to take a small trip down memory lane. Mm -hmm. Okay. Pack your bags. Packy Banks, 2004, Bush and John Kerry are running neck and neck. And they start releasing attack, attack ads just before Election Day saying, if John Kerry becomes president, there'll be gay marriage in California. Their tactic was to scare people who already had some, some predispositions against gay marriage into switching their votes. They also, there was also swift vote, uh, swift vote t- tactics and mm-hmm. a bunch of other stuff that worked. But this is part of their playbook. So... Drumming up this fake fear now about a group of people who, like, immigration, migration, people try to get out of their countries and move into the United States. While it might not be a reality for you, dear listener, hopefully, because it's a heart-wrenching and horrifying process for many people, um, is something that happens all the time. So Trump is seizing on this to do uh, what Republicans have done for a long time is to drum up fear and to show up just in time for elections to start saying it's time to do X, Y, and Z. And he specifically campaigned in Arizona and Nevada, two places with large immigrant populations with contested um, contested races, races where a Democrat could upset a Republican. Well, the other thing of it is is that they have no actual thing to run on, right? Yes. Like... Basically, the Republican platform currently is we're going to take your health insurance and MS-16 and immigrants, you know, and that's all they have. And it's, again, like that thing where I have worn this to death. It's like we we have the truth, pound the truth, you have the law, pound the law. We don't have anything, pound the table. They're just pounding the table. And the table is made out of fears of immigrants. Yeah. And that's pretty much all the table is made out. It's a flimsy table. It's a bad table. It's going to splinter. It's something that... The Republicans have failed at in the last two years, which is governing. Every candidate for Senate is trying to avoid the conversation about pre-existing conditions because the party platform is anti-Obamacare. Every one of these candidates has to fight against the perception of being uh, pro-super wealth and giving tax cuts to those wealthy people. Every one of these people has to face the fact that, especially in Arizona and Nevada, they don't have a good answer about immigration. So they don't want to talk about dreamers, people who are here, who are contributing, who don't break laws, who are asylum seekers. We're very sympathetic. We're very sympathetic. They don't want to talk about the separation policy. So what Trump and the rest of them are doing is trying to shift the conversation to at least we're not in danger of these horrible people. And, you know, I just want to take a moment to talk about a basic idea. And the basic idea is that immigrants are on par worse people. And that's racist. 
Um, it's it's it, we don't have that attitude towards Norwegians or the Swedes or the French. Or, I mean, we used to. Yeah, not anymore. Especially towards, but it's just it's like every era has its own immigrant scapegoat. Sure. Right, like we have the Chinese, the Italians. You still some mark off if you were Italian on a sure. census form, yeah. The Irish, yeah. Like there's a we have a long history of discriminating. Based on outsiderism. Based on outsiderism. And now we, like, the extra coating on the shit cake is that now our, our immigrants du jour also happen to be non-white, although Italians used to be considered non-white. Yeah. Um, it's terrible. It also is in glaring contrast with the facts, which is that they have lower crime rates. I mean, imagine if you left a country... Where you felt that you should tear yourself. Like, I mean, really, I think people don't fully grasp sometimes the, the full immigrant story. You grew up somewhere. Family, friends, a culture that was familiar to you. Uh, TV. Things that are very familiar. All of that you sacrifice. Because something has pushed you to the place of, to, for me to sacrifice and preserve my sanity, my health, my well-being, I'm going to leave for another country. The amount of pressure and discomfort that pushes someone to make such a, a profound choice in their lives. And, you know, even moving to New York was a heart-wrenching decision on my part. I can't imagine moving someplace with a language and the people I have no contact with friends or anything like that. Pushes them to the United States. The stakes for that person when they break the law is so much higher. The stakes for an American who goes to prison and comes back out, and no big deal. I mean, I wouldn't say no big deal. Comparatively. Especially for the people we've incarcerated yes. minor drug offenses ruined their whole lives for no reason. Right, right, right. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, again, comparatively, right? That person compared to the person who's like, I might face deportation or I'm not only now have a, I not only now have a criminal record, but I also, you know, have to go through the process of trying to become a natural born citizen here. Otherwise I'll have to figure out an alternate. The stakes are higher. The yeah. stakes are higher. It's contrary to the fact. It fails the personal gut test for me of like, if I just have a random group of people and the only real differentiator is they moved here, that makes them more violent. The immigrant communities that I grew up in in Houston, Texas weren't more violent. And this is to shift the conversation away from the child separation policy at the border, which would is decisive in Latino, maybe not dominant, but Latino, um, large Latino populations like Arizona and Nevada. Yeah, I mean the the base the base thing is that they're again they're using fear to try and get reelected, and this is part of the Republican playbook. They did it after nine eleven. They did the national security thing, and Democrats capitulate, or they they try and make it seem like they're not they're, they they. That's been the long term problem with Democrats, and the idea of national security, something like that, is that they try they feed into the Republican narrative that this is a problem that exists. And that they try and not seem weak on it in quotation marks, right? Yeah. Versus just being honest and providing a good policy on it, which we could have. Yeah. Right? But again, it's a, it's a difficult and let's do, issue. Let's do a little armchair math. Sure. Let's say the immigrant population that comes into the United States is 8%, 10%. Say 10%. And let's say, just so happens, they're twice as violent as the average American. Okay, fine. So uh, if they're twice as violent, that seems like a, a that's a huge leap, by the way. Uh, the, the numbers for this are absolutely contrary to this. So let's say the average American, you know, 4% of them, or let's say 5, 5% of them are actually more, uh, more or less prone towards criminality. So that means that 10% of immigrants, well, the 10% of immigrants would be point. 8% of people who enter the United States. So that uptick you wouldn't really notice. But you will notice this thing. You don't have health care that protects you. So that when you get sick, you're not financially devastated. That affects every single American. It doesn't uh, protect you when um, your schools are falling apart and where you send your, your kid to school doesn't set them up for success in high school, success in college, success in a, in a um, high-skill uh, industry. It doesn't um, protect you when it comes to making sure that you have clean water and blah, 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 blah. 
So um, that's the cost-benefit analysis. That's the way that that's a way of thinking about it that kind of recontextualizes the immigrant problem as a one percent problem, and problems about tax cuts and whatnot, and and healthcare and whatnot as hundred percent problems. Totally, yeah. And again, it's just a big fear tactic for the GOP because they are absolutely full of hot air, which is mostly farts. They're made out of farts. I have one last thing. It's a new segment I just made up called I Have a Bone to Pick. Yeah. And it's a brief bone to pick. It's like a little wishbone. But it's the uh, super leftists that say voting doesn't matter. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So it's the other end of the voting doesn't matter spectrum. And I want to say that I hate you. Right? Because they'll say, like, white women have the savior complex now with their vote. Like, they're going to change something with their vote. Which is partially true because white women have not showed up for marginalized communities like sex workers or women of color, et cetera, et cetera, immigrants. Right? Yeah. That does not mean that you dissuade people from voting. Oh, yeah. And the numbers for this... I see this a lot. And it's really bothering me. The numbers for this are, like, also... People don't know how, like, mechanical things like sales and marketing are or campaigns... If 60% of Americans just voted, right, if, if it was just like 60% of Americans just randomly were voting, we would have Obama-level Democratic blue wave numbers. Just 60%. That's how rote it is, number one. Number two is not voting has more consequences than voting. If you vote and your person doesn't win, you lost a couple minutes out of your day. But if you voted, if you didn't vote... You could lose out on four years of watching a president turn everything that you didn't know you held so dear to your well-being and ruining it. Yeah. Um, yeah, so fucking vote. Just fucking vote. It's so, it's so, just do it, man. And it's like, I talked to some old political operative. He's in, like an up, like uh, northern Minnesota. He, he runs like a rural district. And we were arguing over mailers versus digital. And he was like, well, mailers cost a bunch of money and only old people vote. And so that's why you're getting a bunch of stupid mailers in your mail constantly because old people turn out and old people kill trees because they don't know how to use electronics to put on their glasses, see their phones. Okay. So I want digital marketing and campaigns to take off because it's the way of the future and you can access way more people and Paper mailers suck. So get out there and vote so we can change this narrative, okay? It really annoys me. This is my bone to pick. Great. <laughs> All right. My name is Krina Celine. And I'm Matt Abedi. And this is We're, We're Just, just here, here to Help. help.